Hi everyone, my name is Yvonne and I'm a ch I am the Chair of the Community Engagement, Advocacy and Policy Committee of the Mother Lab. Mother Lab stands for Maternal Outcomes for Translational Health Equity Research. I'm a current senior here at Tufts University and I have Amaya Menta and Lauren Cohen here with me from the Mother Lab. We are so grateful to be joined by Dr. April Lockley, Dr. Farinaz Khan, and Dr. Dahlia Brahmi to learn more about the racial disparities in abortion and experiences of abortion providers of color. Okay, so we're going to get started with questions for you guys because we are so excited to hear about all that you do. Um, so just to start, what made you decide to go into family medicine and more specifically join the abortion disparities collective that you work on and would you be able to tell us a little bit more about the collective so i'm april uh obviously family medicine doctor so i came to become a physician like after college i didn't know that's what i wanted to do and i don't have any physicians in my family and thankfully like most of my family's been healthy growing up and myself healthy growing up so I didn't have a lot of experience being in the like, healthcare hospital uh, uh, space but after college I just really fell in love with science and health, especially for my, as myself being a black woman um, to really kind of focus on kind of that full spectrum of reproductive health care which includes abortion care that isn't always talked about like I barely got any abortion training during my family medicine residency training and so I thought it was really important for myself to feel comfortable uh, being an abortion provider, um, specifically uh, as a Black woman. We can go next. Um, so I grew up in Louisiana. Um, so I, uh, myself and all of my peers, we just really didn't learn anything about our bodies, about sex. Um, I also grew up in a pretty conservative culture and religion. And so I didn't get that information at my in my home either. And um, I just saw uh, a lot of the um, kind of consequences of, of not talking about sex and, and reproductive health. The relationships we have with our patients is such a beautiful experience. Um, similar to what April said, I, I, I don't do primary care anymore right now, but um, I remember when I was leaving my clinic, like, um, I had some patients cry, you know, people just telling me that, you know, they're never going to feel comfortable with another person again, um, like another doctor. Um, it's just a really special relationship to, to actually be there for somebody um, in, a, in a long, like a longitudinal experience. Um, yeah, um, good morning again. So I, uh, a lot of what um, Farinaz and April have said has echoed for me. <laughs> to me, um, I was born in North Africa and Algeria and came to Indianapolis when I was five and grew up there in a very conservative, xenophobic like area and um, was very, um, always liked science, but um, had gotten into human rights work and Amnesty International early on in my um, like even in high school and um, thought I would want to go in that direction and kind of do human rights work and but realized later on it going into medicine that or that I didn't want to work in an office and so 
Um, even though I was a science major, I really didn't like the pre-med people. It felt like a very like certain type of person. And I remember thinking like, I'm definitely not going to medical school. And so didn't go to medical school after college, um, did other, other things and, and worked in civic education and community organizing. And what brought me back to medicine was like those, this, uh, this ability to to join like a social justice with like science and knowledge, but how to communicate it. And that specifically led me to family medicine. In residency, it was one of the rotations that felt the most organized and where you, where um, the idea of like not abandoning your patients when they were going through this period of time um, felt really important. Beth, thank you so much for sharing. You really have highlighted the importance of having culturally competent providers and just showing us the reciprocal benefits of being able to be a POC and giving this um, provider-patient interaction. So um, we just wanted to switch course a little bit and talk about something that has obviously been really, really scary and just something that has gotten a lot of talk recently, but about um, your thoughts on the recent Texas Heartbeat bill because a lot of the dialogue from abortion rights advocates surrounding this new Texas bill um, and the Missouri abortion case that has been heard by the Supreme Court has been indicating that minorities are most affected by these bills and a lot uh, more at risk. So could you just speak to this point a little bit more and your experience with it? It's actually Mississippi, not Missouri. I put that on the chat, but um... So it, it's a it's a huge problem because when you look at um, the the data of who gets abortions, right? Uh, when people of color are disproportionately getting abortions, and so um, the Bootmacher has a really nice report on this. But um, black women are almost five times as likely to get an abortion, um, and and Latinx Latina women are more are almost twice as much as likely to get abortions compared to both of those are in comparison to white women. And so um, any uh, politicization or any any issue around abortion is I think inherently a racial justice uh, issue because of who is getting, who, uh, because of the demographics of who is getting abortions. And um, in particular, you know, I, I think also when we are talking about abortion, um, often, often the conversation is just around that specific medical care. And it really misses all of the other reasons that people get abortions. For example, like having unintended pregnancies, which people of color are more likely to have unintended pregnancies. And then when you sort of think about that more, right? People of color are less likely to have access to high quality contraception. So that is further contributing to the issue of why we are disproportionately getting abortions. And so um, it, it is a, a very disheartening, um, I, my heart is really with all of the people in Texas right now. Um, I was supposed to work in Texas. And so it's just, it's just really, uh, disappointing and really highlights all of the structural things that exist in our society that, that are deliberately there to prevent um, the economic, political, and social mobility of people of color. 
Yeah, I, I think um, I have, when I hear about all the talk about Texas and oh, how bad it is, and yes, it is horrible. And it's always been really bad for a lot of people trying to access abortion care. Texas bill, you know, preventing abortion like two weeks after people have missed a period is absurd and ridiculous. And, um, you know, for all the reasons Farinaz explained, like is very racist and classist and and doesn't, but but to just talk about abortion doesn't address like all the other issues of like immigration status and and how you show up to healthcare in general. Yeah, I will just add one thing that I think when people think about abortion, they're just thinking about that act or that experience or that period in time, but it's all part of a greater context as April was saying, like these are humans who have families who may have just given birth to a baby who's in the NICU or have an ill family member or is trying to leave a relationship that is not healthy or just got into nursing school or it's part of like a greater context of someone's life. And because of how the dialogue is about it, like it's just, it, it doesn't capture that. Um, and I think that's um, unfortunate. Thank you so much. Uh, we definitely agree that societal factors and structural factors are never considered. And although the Texas heartbeat bill did get a lot of public response, these disparities have existed for a very long time and they are getting attention now. But we are so glad to be meeting with you <laughs> to learn a lot more. And um, just to pivot a little bit, uh, to the impact of COVID-19 as we are living in the pandemic still and have been for a while. We were wondering how has COVID-19 impacted your provision of abortions? And if you had any experiences or thoughts on the disproportionate impact COVID-19 has had on um, providing them and getting them for women of color. So I can I can start. I again, this is an issue that you know came up in the beginning of the pandemic in states that already had restrictions. So it then became a political issue that people were not considering abortion care as essential care. And so in Texas specifically, since we're talking about that, uh, there was a lot of back and forth. There was days in Texas that services were were shut down because you know, all non-essential services were shut down. Um, so again, obviously, um, if you're in the middle of a pandemic, worried about, you know, getting sick um, and you're pregnant and don't want to be pregnant, that's an added factor uh, during a pandemic. So as someone who worked in New York, thankfully, uh, abortion care was considered an essential healthcare service and it wasn't shut down during the pandemic. But during the height of things, it was obviously very difficult. Um, I think there were two extremes that I experienced, people coming in super early, like uh, right when they 
missed their period and taking a pregnancy test and finding out people were coming in super, super early, um, just really nervous and like not wanting to be pregnant. And then other people delaying care and coming in later in their pregnancies, um, you know, on the other other end. So there's kind of those two extremes um, that again, uh, as New York was the kind of epicenter of the pandemic in the beginning, you know, it was very scary for a lot of people um, specifically, you know, people of color that were in the hardest hit areas of, uh, of, of COVID here in, in the city. Since then, um, you know, speaking again of privilege of being in New York, some things have actually gotten a little bit better in regards to like medication abortion provision. And so, um, you know, research has shown that medication abortion is safe for people to take at home the two medications, methoprostone and misoprostol, without ever coming into a doctor or clinician's office. And so here in New York, it has actually been made easier for some people to get pills mailed to them, um, either buying them on the internet themselves or doctor's offices in New York, mailing them the medications and not actually ever having to step foot in, in our offices. So that has been kind of a silver lining um, in our state for people being able to access care a little bit easier, you know, again, as Dahlia mentioned, in the context of people's lives, people have to go to work, they have to take care of family members, all those kind of things. So I will say that's been, again, a little bit of a silver lining for care here in New York. The medication abortion, um, in a way, uh, takes less of this. Previously, you might have to come to the doctor's office three times to get your pills, and now sometimes you don't even have to come in at all. I think with COVID, it showed I, I'm in North Carolina and one of the states that um, prohib among the many other restrictions prohibits telehealth for medication abortion. And so especially at the peak of the pandemic, you just felt the like utter cruelty and disregard for people's lives as there was a lot of dialogue about how hard it is about childcare when schools were closed and how hard it is to get to the doctor. And it's, you know, these unnecessary visits and for everything else we could do telehealth, but not for medication abortion or any abortion related care. And so, you know, it felt as if we were, again, a lot of these restrictions are often couched in language of like safety and protecting women, quote unquote. And it's just so clear that it's never about that. It's just about punishing people who need abortion care and the people who try to offer that care. So um, COVID specifically made um, just the stress levels go up in abortion care environments. Um, I think the demand for services went up and then the disparities in places that do have the ability to offer sort of telehealth um, abortion care and those that don't, that made it more clear and just felt frustrating that um, patients couldn't um, benefit from that technology. Yeah, I don't, I don't have too much more to add. Um... One, the, one thing that came to my mind, uh, because I've been reviewing some of the transcripts from our photo voice sessions, um, but uh, one of our participants had a um, picture of just uh, kind of a single chair for a patient to sit in in the lobby um, and talked about how 
with the social distancing rules, and I don't know where this person practices, but how um, sort of the previous ways that we could connect with each other um, were sort of missing in this post-pandemic clinical life, you know, not being able to sit with another person or um, in a lot of clinics, people are not, we're not really being even allowed in science. You have to go sit in your car. Well, if you don't have a car, you know, where are you gonna go? Um, and so, uh, yeah, I just, I, want, I wonder what, how it's been different for our patients and, and what are some of the emotions they may be feeling coming in and, and um, feeling, you know, totally alone in this experience. Not um, some clinics, I think, also weren't allowing visit a like a support person, and you had to kind of have them wait outside, and and they would just pick you up after the procedure. And so, um, thank you so much for sharing that. We know that COVID has introduced a lot more barriers into receiving healthcare in general, um, and it isn't surprising that it's been affecting abortion access and the experience of getting an abortion as well. Um, Hello, Dr. Lockley, it was kind of heartening to hear that the medication abortions didn't necessarily have to be in person during COVID and there were other services that could be utilized, although that isn't the case everywhere. Um, but hopefully as we come out of this pandemic, um, we can see abortion care kind of go back to, you know, the levels that it was at before and having support people in the room and just providing a more comfortable environment for the patients. Um, I just wanted to add one, sorry, you just reminded yeah, of me of something. Um, the, with the medication abortion as well um, and, and mailing, right? Like we're now finding out that we actually don't need to do ultrasound, right? When people, like a lot of people are certain and they're very close to what the ultrasound finding is. And so um, I think that has also been like one of the positives, like understanding that yes, we should, you know, I, I think in medicine, we, we, we develop this bias of like, oh, we can't believe our patients, you know, um, they're not reliable. Um, but that has been nice, just just having data, you know, there's been a few studies out showing that people are very, a lot of people that have regular periods um, are are pretty certain on how far along they are. And, and we should, we should, be more trusting of our patients and not create once again these sort of barriers that I think are really to for us as the provider to feel good right like to maybe it's defensive medicine or protecting ourselves being like okay we have this picture that shows how far along someone is um, so that has I think also been kind of a, a, a blessing with the pandemic and, and realizing that we don't really need to do a lot of the things that we have been taught are important. Yeah, thanks so much for sharing that. Um, just kind of switching gears a little bit, when we talk about reproductive rights, we often use a language of choice. Um, so we just want to open a little bit of a discussion on who actually gets to have reprodu reproductive choice in this country and how does a person's different identities, whether that be race, class, gender, or however else they identify themselves, how does that impact their rights and their access to reproductive services? Well, I think as, uh, specifically, I'll speak as a Black person speaking uh, on behalf of like my ancestors, you know, Black people have not had choice since really the beginning of, of time in being in this country. And so when you think about reproduction and abortion care, uh, that choice was taken away from us a very long time ago. And that has continued, you know, today in many 
many different ways. Um, uh, you know, enslaved people were taking care of themselves um, as much as they could, you know, during those uh, time periods, um, you know, through having uh, midwives, um, you know, having abortions, you know, hundreds of years ago. And then as we move towards the 18th and 19th and 20th centuries, uh, you know, specific laws coming into play and gynecology being born, um, being white-led, male-dominated, um, and then that has you know, further gone to like uh, abortion restrictions when people have been having abortions for you know again since the beginning of time. So a choice has often been taken away from us uh, through you know forced sterilization, um, through forced forms of birth control, like the longer-acting forms of birth control have been often forced on people of color. Black people specifically. Um, and again, obviously that once again goes into uh, abortion care as well. So yeah, I think that's why, especially the term reproductive justice was coined, you know, in the early nineties because, uh, you know, white women and specifically were always talking about choice and pro-choice and that framing did not work for, for us. Um, and so, I'm glad that people are, you know, kind of recognizing that, you know, more and more today, but really we haven't had choice for hundreds of years. Um, and unfortunately that does still continue in many, many aspects of care that we provide. Yeah, I, I think really the the language of of um, choice feminism is is problematic because I think it is another iteration of of white feminism, right? That is devoid of all of the intersectionalities of women and um, also I'll include queer, trans and non-binary people into that conversation um, because reproductive justice as Rachel mentioned is very different for people of color and historically marginalized people, right? We were, were the conversation centered around abortion access is very important, but it's not everything, it's not the end all and be all for, for people of color. Um, and in particular, I have some young cousins that have been that I've been worried about. So one of the things that's been on my mind is police violence, right? And 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 when I think of myself who's not a parent and I'm not sure if I ever want to be one, um, you know, bringing bringing forth life into a country that doesn't value people that look like me. I mean, that is something that weighs very heavily with me. And so um, the, the centering of choice, I think really strips away the intersections that exist in reproductive health. Um, and when the second part of your question, right, um, as I mentioned, people of color um, who disproportionately are also, also uh, lower SES, um, get offered different birth control options. Um, they, you know, have providers that are less likely to understand their experiences. And for people that, that speak different languages, you know, it, you're you're most you're more likely to be misunderstood when you go to access medical care. And all of these are barriers that not only prevent access to reproductive health care, but really um, dehumanize our patients and 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 perpetuate mistrust in medical care, perpetuate mistrust in, in um, at getting accurate information. I had a patient recently that um, thought that was on birth control pills and thought that it was supposed to be, you know, 
um, with each act of sex and not every day. And I, I just, you know, really broke my heart. I was like, wow, nobody took the time to just explain this to you. Um, and um, so uh, I think, you know, focusing on choice is important, but we have to also be cognizant of the bigger picture, which is that choice is uh, was really the narrative around white feminism. And we have to really always center reproductive justice uh, because the experiences of our patients and of ourselves as people of color is vastly different um, than, um, than, than those that, you know, are, are have more racial privilege than we do. Yeah, I, I agree with, everything that's been said, I think one thing that I'll add is that I think from a patient's perspective or somebody, you know, making the decision to have an abortion, like sometimes doesn't feel like a choice for them. And so the words even themselves just feel hollow or empty, I think, and to frame it that way, because it feels like a decision they're making because of, that they don't necessarily want to be making. and. Um, and clearly not always, but sometimes. And so that's um, that's difficult. Even choosing, you know, quote, choosing um, a lot of things in healthcare, it's not really a choice because it's led by economics, right? Like where we're practiced, they have to pay more to get IV sedation. Well, they're not choosing that. It's like they can't afford the hundred whatever dollars to get that. So yes, they chose not to get it, but it wasn't really a choice. Um, the same is true sometimes with um, medication abortion or aspiration or procedural abortion, um, where I worked at the same cost, but they, it, it just, I, I think choice just assumes a lot of privilege that people don't always have. I'm just gonna add one more thing since, uh... Dolly made me think about it just about since she asked about choice and it was been directly abortion care, but thinking about uh, fertility care and infertility uh, services as well. And someone who's kind of going through that process myself right now. Um, and I do have patients and it's family medicine physicians. We can often do like a lot of the basic workup for infertility and do some things, but it's not the same as seeing like a specialist who uh, specializes in infertility care and um, IVF and all those kind of things. And that choice is often taken away for um, people of color and people of lower socioeconomic status. Um, yeah, thank you so much for sharing your experiences and talking to us a little bit about um, the language about something around choice and the way that it's really rooted in white feminism. And so we just wanted to backpedal a little bit and thank you guys for bringing this to our attention about the problematic language around the Texas bill. And we were able to read a little bit about that, but we would love for you to share um, any more information that you have about it and why it's really problematic to say. Oh, I'm happy to chime in. I just had put in some links that I could find quickly, but one, I think it's important to not um, perpetuate sort of inaccuracies um, that are brought on by like anti-abortion people. So by talking about quote, the heartbeat, it you have this image of like a fully formed baby with a fully formed heart, and that's actually just not accurate. And so there are more six weeks abortion bans. Um, I even think that language is problematic because people don't know what six weeks of pregnancy means. I think it's much more concrete to think like, it's two weeks after you've missed a period. And maybe that's not a bite-sized piece, but 
that's what people experience, you know, to, to, because even six weeks thinking like, oh, that person had six weeks to decide that, you know, that they were pregnant. That's not how it's working. But I just think in general, like language is so important here. And um, that just like the language of choice, you know, is problematic. I think here it's more because um, one, it's not accurate. Like there's electrical activity, but not really a heartbeat. And two, it perpetuates um, the language of people whose sole goal is preventing access to abortion care. And in many ways, and in many times contraception at all, you know, fertility control at all. Um, so that that's my perspective on it. I'm sure others have other things. I think that was very well said. I think um, uh, just to parallel it to COVID, right? Like I think there's like little buzzwords that can be sensationalized, but it's actually being used by people that don't actually know what they're talking about. And, and, and it's being framed as something like medical and scientific, but it's not actually rooted in, in reality. And so um, I think similar to a lot of the stuff with COVID, always making sure that we are being factual with what we're saying. Um, to counter that narrative that is um, committed to kind of misconstruing the reality. Yep, I 100% agree. You know, the antis have made, unfortunately, a lot of progress through straight out lies. And uh, there's no other way to put it. I think, you know, obviously people do have abortions when the fetus has a heart and that's okay. But this law is not talking about that. There is no heart at five weeks or six weeks. So, um, you know, us as abortion providers, I think our goal is to provide care however a patient needs it, whether that's if they want to go prenatal care, if they want to have adoption, if they want to have abortion, and we can't uh, fall into the traps that the antis have been using for many years, even though they've been working, but it's, it's not what uh, our patients should endure is, you know, lies after lies. And so that's why I think language is important, you know, piggybacking off of the word choice and heartbeat and using all those kind of words accurately um, is very important to me uh, when talking with, you know, communities and my patients themselves. Yeah, and we just wanted to extend a huge, huge thank you to Dr. Brahmi, Dr. Lockley, and Dr. Khan just for taking the time to speak with us. And really, we have learned so much in this one hour, so I can't imagine what else we'll learn from you guys in the future. And we are really, really, really grateful that we were able to spend this time with you guys today. I totally agree. Like, I think that definitely, like, online, like, we've done our fair share like over the summer we did a lot of research but just within the one hour i feel like i've gotten a total different perspective and especially on like disparity care like we couldn't find anything and it was really hard to even learn about different policies but i feel like now we understand a lot of misinformation that exists in society and the different structural factors are that are at play and we look forward to working with you more to learn more and help to address and do everything we can.